Good. I would like to ask for your kind attention, some thoughts to contextualize what we are trying to do. Uh, I would uh, like to zoom out. I know we've been trying to guide you to zoom in today, um, become interested in single breaths and the minutiae of uh, your subjective experience as embodied and um, cognized and I would like to go in the other direction tonight and kind of um, look at what Buddhist teachings call mind or what we translate with mind uh, Buddhist teachings refer to this as citta and look at some uh, of the, at, at some of the ways in how this is conceptualized in uh, early Buddhist teaching. And uh, I would like to focus in the second part on a specific map that underpins our meditative approach this, uh, in this course called the Satipatthanas. So one of the big challenges is becoming aware of one's own lens when we approach something as a religion or an understanding of mind because most of the time we're already part of something and to become aware of something else means we also have to become aware of what we actually already have uh, on our noses goggles yeah so and if you want to really be clear what you're getting in terms of something new or something different or other you also need to at some point not just stare out there to see how it looks and how it moves and what it does and what it isn't you actually need to become aware of how your goggles work you know what kind of light they filter uh, what your perspective is uh, that you have as unquestionable vantage point so uh, there are ways you can obviously make big statements. One such statement is that the West has focused in many of its, if you look at the history of ideas, attempts to understand the mind and human beings in a sort of horizontal way. A horizontal way within a lifetime. A life as it unfolds in time, in the span of a lifetime. That is, I think, fair to say that many of Western attempts have uh, tried to make sense of the what of our experience as it unfolds within the span of a lifetime. The East in some ways has uh, done something different, more interested that maybe particularly the Buddhist East in a kind of vertical line, uh, not a span of time as it unfolds within a life, but a timelessness dimension. Yeah? So if you want it to be really um, simplistic, you could say uh, many of the East and particularly Buddhist traditions have tried to get a perspective on the how, not on the what of our experience. They try to understand how the experiencer is actually arriving at his picture, at his story. Yeah? And some of Western traditions have tried to understand the what the content of that experience as it unfolds, as it grows. And this is a big shift. If we become contemplative practitioners, then one of the things we need to learn is that 
the content of our stream of experience will never be as important, whatever that content is, will never be as important as the awareness that knows such content. Yeah? Now that is totally counterintuitive, to be honest with you. Because we uh, grow up, we have uh, a lot of encouragement to be identified with that content. I am the things that I think of. I am the moods that I have. I am my will functions. I am my emotional states. Yeah? We have a lot of encouragement to believe this. Some of this encouragement is explicit. You have to own your anger. Um, some of this in, uh, encouragement is not implicit. It just feels that way. Yeah? It just feels like it's me. You are out there and I'm in here. And if I close my eyes, you guys are gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so It just feels like the important bit is here. Yeah? And out there is some, you know, you're kind of, you could be modulations of my consciousness out there, yeah? If push came to shove, you know, you were just basically at the periphery of my glorious self, yeah? <laughs> you, as an audience, maybe, or as a decorative framing of, you know, the real important story that happens here, yeah? Axis Mundi goes right through here, yeah? <laughs> now, I trust you don't quite believe that, but obviously it... Um, it can feel that way. Um, and sometimes when in, in the claws of stronger emotions, generally it does feel that way. Uh, in our brighter moments, we realize it's probably not quite true. You know, there is actually something sentient out there that responds and that has, you know, I can meaningfully connect with. But it is a challenge for us to accept that a habit of attentional focus and identification with content of experience comes under scrutiny and yields gradually to an understanding that the capacity to know content, the awareness that is capable of holding content as content, is more important than however exquisite the local content of my stream of consciousness is. Yeah. This is a big challenge. Many, many practitioners um, take a long time to learn to disidentify from the content of their story, from the content of their experience, and learn to establish an increasingly trusting relationship to the capacity of mind to know contents, states, impulses, affective, somatic, cognitive functions of mind, and to Take a refuge in that knowing. Take a refuge in the capacity to know and be clear that it is such knowing that is transformative. It is clear that such knowing that allows growth, maturing, allows perspective, allows understanding and finally allows liberation. Yeah. This is a counterintuitive uh, process. Inherently, it always feels... The world out there touches me by my six senses and there is something in here that receives these, this world. The sensory uh, impingement uh, of this world on my sense fields uh, leave me with uh, uh, an understanding that there is something out there and there is somebody in here that gets it. If it's nice, I feel privileged and appreciative and grateful maybe. 
If it's not nice, I tend to feel myself to be a victim. I tend to feel uh, I want to attribute blame. I uh, feel in both ways, in some sense, uh, ownership and entitlement. Yeah. So Buddhist contemplative traditions have tried, have acknowledged this process, not quite in that language. Uh, you, this language, uh, you will. Uh, be in agreement with me is probably more psychological and the Buddha's language although his position is psychological his language is not yeah we we don't use psychological language for very long um, there is I had an argument recently about when exactly we started to use psychological language um, I am of the impression that uh, safe for a few specialists this is probably at the turn to the 20th century where this began, where we began to actually speak about and think about inner experience in psychological terms. Um, Jane Austen, highly interested in psychology, and George Eliot even more, didn't speak psychological language. They were speaking psychological people, but not psychological language. Yeah. So it's a fairly recent way of looking at inner experience in terms of the language of psychology and yet it's quite widespread yeah. whether you like psychology whether you think this is a useful thing to be employing to refer to inner experience or not uh, is not really of great importance the fact is that it is so widespread that we often don't even identify psychological terms as psychological terms anymore because it has been, become commonplace to refer to one's inner world no longer in mythical or in poetical or in uh, cosmological terms, but actually in psychological terms. The language of uh, secular age is definitely a language of uh, medicine, <laughs> a language of the, uh, the medicalization of human beings and human bodies is, uh, is dramatic if we look at uh, how it is developed in the last century and obviously psychology yeah. we're referring to what's happening in us in psychological terms now buddhist teachings does not do that it refers to inner experience and particularly the the place where such experience takes place uh, that's the that's what chitta is it's the habitat uh, of my experience and as you can imagine like in a habitat this is made up of many many different things now that chitta is a fascinating term. Um, Buddhist traditions were in several minds about that term. The Buddha, this one, one has the impression almost annoyingly, not really defined the term properly. If we look at how Buddhist texts use this term, it is quite refractory to a clean definition. You know, Buddhists can define things sometimes really neat and clean. They quite like that. But there are some terms, the term chitta is one of them, uh, is almost, um, one has a feeling with some intention, not uh, neatly diced and uh, pigeonholed, if we look at its usage in the suttas. We translate it basically as heart or as mind. It refers to uh, the felt locus of subjective experience 
before any split into cognitive and affective function. That citta is described as being luminous, inherently pure. Um, it can be capable of lofty intuitions. It can be pliable, workable. It can be uh, abundant, um, is one term. It can be um, resplendent, I think would be the word, vipula. Uh, um, but then again, it can also be seduced, it can have a mind of its own, it can behave like the proverbial monkey mind, that's by the way a Pali word, yeah? kapichita is a Pali term. It, it, uh, it can like things or not like things, it, uh, it can be terrified, yeah? the Pali uses this term, interesting, his mind is always terrified, that's I remember, a little sort of side statement about somebody. <laughs> That sounds highly psychological to me. Um, so I am, when sifting through the references to this term, uh, I find a great psychological wealth of descriptions of what that place called Chitta looks like. Yeah. It is literally at the heart of my experience, and it... Um, can be cultivated. That's maybe the most important thing about the citta. It is probably more processed than a structure. I know the Abhidharmist would not agree with me on this one, but it is something that is made up like a habitat of different components. It doesn't belong to anybody. It dies at death. Um, it is conditioned. Yeah. It's not inherently free. It has this potential, but it, is, it can be troubled, it can be contracted, it can be um, in the grip of passions, it um, can be trained. That's maybe the really good news. It can be trained. And in fact, that is what much of Buddhist teaching is about. Uh, it's the, the key concept there is training or cultivation as it is called yeah agricultural metaphor cultivation bringing into being citta bhavana is the big project of mind training as it comes across in all buddhist traditions the notion of mind training so if we think of mind uh, if you allow me to put that in scare quotes as something that does not yet have a division between cognitive mind and affective mind, between intellect and heart, then we can agree to use the word mind for this. But it's, mind is such a rubbery term that we need to clarify that. We need to saturate it with that Buddhist meaning uh, for it to become meaningful yeah, uh, in our context. So the training of this citta is one of the big projects in, in Buddhist, um, the whole Buddhist program. Uh, that training hinges on a very, very, almost embarrassingly simple principle. Um, I'm a little almost ashamed to say that. But the principle basically goes like this. Uh, that the mind begins to resemble the things that 
you attend to. Yeah? It's so simple. Yeah? The mind begins to resemble the things it takes up and frequently gives its attention to. That's what the texts say. It inclines to become of such a nature that it resembles that which you feed into the mind. Yeah. William James must have meant something similar when he, probably without knowing of Buddhist texts in 1870, uh, stated that basically where we place our attention, that becomes our experience. Yeah. We could give him a Buddhist title, Honoris Causa, I think, alone on the basis of that statement. Yeah? He, he is almost uh, congruent with the famous statement in the middle, one of the middle-length sayings, discourses, uh, where it says, you know, whatever that mind takes up frequently and ponders and gives its attention to in such a way the heart will incline. We become what we feed this mind. It's very simple. We all know that from a private and subjective and anecdotal way. So it is no wonder that Buddhist teachings um, emphasize the need and develop tools to bring about such mind training. And this mind training is a big project and it hinges on a number of things. Uh, Western folks have picked up some of these things. Uh, at some point, this was called yoga, a very old word. Uh, Buddhists use that as much as the yogic tradition does. The Buddha often says, you know, yoke yourself to this task. You know? um, give, basically, put your knuckle down. Yeah, knuckle down and and yoke yourself to this particular exercise. You know? Dedicate yourself to it. Apply yourself to it. There are so many words that speak of application. Yeah. So many Buddhist words that speak of some form of emancipatory effort. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes that uh, effort is quite strenuous, muscular, somewhat uh, sweat-inducing. Uh, other times that effort seems mentalized, seems refined, seems about steadying attention, refining attention, diversifying attention, stabilizing attention. Um, and sometimes it's quite hands-on. Yeah. So making effort is one big topic of mind training. Another effort or another big topic in that mind training is stabilizing, stilling, calming, tranquilizing. Yeah. So the whole samadhi dimension is another big topic. Then a third big topic is investigating, examining, sifting through, uh, fathoming, probing into. So these are three big areas. We have countless terms. There's an incredible wealth in Buddhist uh, language, particularly Pali Buddhist language, for things we, we only have two, three words. So say for wisdom, understanding, and knowing, we have about these three words. But in Pali, you have about 20 words for the whole, for this process. Now, and you know, uh, as much as I do, that the things that are important to us, we have many different names for, isn't it? That's not, we, it's always the same story. If the, if, the, if the herb has some use, then every village has another name for that herb. 
if the herb has no use, then it's kind of called herb, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Or inedible herb or something like that, yeah? So think of how many names you have for eating or how many names there are for men or for women. Yeah? So things that seem important to us have many, many terms. And by that uh, somewhat simplistic assessment, you can assume that the things that you have many terms in Pali language are, have probably been terribly important to the people who were using that language. So it is telling to me that the whole wisdom faculty has many, many more uh, has a much more diversified terminology that I, I find it, f for example, in English, or, or in German for that matter, um, which isn't exactly poor in these things, but it's uh, still no way uh, a match to, say, Pali. Just to give you an idea that some areas about which Buddhist psychology speaks are difficult to translate because we only have to rely on two, three terms to relate basically 20 terms. Yeah? So, such mind training um, is understood to be the major project of contemplative living. So, much of what we, much of what monastic life uh, was designed to do was to create a situation where contemplative living could be fruitful and possible, where people found the possibility to do something that is by nature difficult, namely introspective exercises. Evolution favors that our attention goes outwards, because that's where things happen, yeah? that's, that's where we um, meet our needs. Um, we need to survive somehow, there's things out there that want to eat us. Uh, when we came to this game we were rather late, you know, there were things out there that would swim faster, climb higher, have bigger jaws, run better, you know. Uh, we were not very good at these things. If you look at the, the story, basically, we came late and we weren't terribly good you know, at some of the crucial dominant features that other creatures had developed. So we needed tricks, yeah. So one of, one of our tricks is, uh, is empathy. Empathy is what you need to team up with others. Uh, and that's what basically saved us. Um, if it wouldn't have been for empathy, we wouldn't have made the race. I'm still somewhat dubious about the outcome of this race. <laughs> um, in terms of evolution, it looks like there's many of us. And if you want to rate that as progress, I, I, yeah, I'm not quite on board with this. Because the fact that there's so many of us may actually... Uh, hasten the undoing of this planet uh, because uh, we have now collective so much power to create destruction uh, and we seem to be growing the, in the wisdom faculty a little slower um, so we're, we're dangerous in some ways but there's many of us and that means we have somehow uh, been successful amongst many other forms of life on this planet that we were competing with and the reason why we have been successful is because another faculty of mind, and this is called empathy. So we have begun to connect with others and we have a deep capacity to feel with others, touch others, take what others feel serious 
and relate to others, not just when they're on their best behavior, but to bond, to deeply and meaningfully and sustainably bond and connect with others. That's a very powerful feature of human beings. And um, it's with this that we have become um, so many, basically. Buddhist mind training, besides stabilizing, besides investigating, and uh, besides acknowledging the capacity to learn, has also the capacity to affectively connect. So that's part of mind training, that we learn to empathetically connect in different tones. Friendliness, compassion, joy, equanimity are all relational aspects. They all have something to do with empathy. I have a running argument with psychologists who try to tell me that these are complex emotions. Uh, yet again, I forcefully want to disagree with this take. Brahma-viharas are not complex emotions. Uh, they are also emotions, but not just emotions. They are uh, something that, that are inherent to the human mind. And uh, the development of this dimension, the empathetic connectedness in the relational domain, is one of the dimensions of mind training. It's one of the dimensions of citta bhavana. So there's quite a program already. Yeah? Making effort, acknowledging capacity to know, investigating, empathetically connecting with our fellow beings, and stilling, learning to clarify, stabilize, calm, tranquilize the mind. One of the reasons why we do this is because the mind that is calm heightens its capacity to understand. A very simplistic model of the citta would say something like, there's basically three main functions of that citta. One function is to be on a fundamental level sensitive. It is capable of resonance, picks up things. Sensitivity. Starts with sentiency and you know, grows up with refinement of actually the use of our sensory functions. That's the first layer. The second layer is to respond. Respond to that sensory stimuli with uh, producing what Buddhist teachings call sankhara, formations uh, of mind, generally of a, a volitional or conative dimension. So there's something in us that wants things and that can move things. We can intend things. So a wish an aspiration, a desire, an aversion are all forms of sankharas. Yeah? We would call them emotions, but they are, in, from the point of view of Buddhist psychology, they all operate as impulses that have the power to bring something other about. They can give direction. Yeah? Some of them we like, some of them we don't, but that is beside the point for the moment. They are forms of intentionality, meaning a force that is capable of bringing about a change in its own habitat. With these forces we can change 
not just what we get, but also who we are. We can change the vantage point from which we look. We can change how we conceive of ourselves. We can change our relationship to what we think is the subject of experience. These are powerful force. And the more you know about Sankaras, the more they become central in the whole concept of mind training. The third function, maybe most important of the citta, is to understand. So, first function, to be sensitive. Second function, to respond, react to such sensory stimulation. The third function, to understand. Now, the simple truth is, the less you're preoccupied with working on number, on floor number one and floor number two, the bigger your capacity to understand is. That's where the whole notion of Buddhist mind training comes from. Besides the simple fact that what we turn our attention to becomes A, our experience, and B, the climate which the mind begins to internalize and to replicate. Besides that simple principle, we also have the other principle that the more the mind is, the citta is preoccupied with handling sensory input and responding to sensory input, the less it is capable of understanding. Yeah. It seems that there is a limited resource for handling all of these functions. And the more t the two lower functions are, or the two primary functions are engaged, the less resources seem to be available for the third function of knowing. Yeah. Now it so happens that this knowing is the liberative bit. It's that which makes the heart free. It's to understand truly. There's a little tension in Buddhist teaching. Uh, some Buddhist traditions think the primary problem is bad habit. We need to purify the mind from bad habits. When we purify the mind from bad habits, then it will work more accurately. It'll bring better perceptions. It will better perceptions with, which are a better foundation for clear understanding. And, and so forth. We need to basically wean ourselves from bad habits. Other Buddhist traditions have a slight shift. They say the problem is not bad habit, the problem is fundamental lack of understanding. We need to wake up from the sleep of not knowing. Bad habit is just the outcome of basically not understanding things properly. So the, the major task is to open your eyes, really. Yeah. Open your eyes is more important. Once you open your eyes, you will realize that the bad habits are not working and you willingly let go of them because you have found out that they hurt more than they help. The Buddhists have played this over the centuries. Some traditions have given more favor to that, more favor to that. Truth is, from my modest point of view, it seems both of them are true, unfortunately. And you can't afford just siding with one of these options. You actually have to acknowledge that you need to work on both sides. Yeah. But it's clear that the notion, the capacity of the citta to understand is the foundation for what we call release, what we call liberation, what we call um, uh, freedom, basically. Yeah. So if we want this heart to uh, throw off its shackles, then we need to find ways to maximize its knowing capacity. That's where meditation comes in. That's where citta bhavana becomes, uh, translates gradually into a specific exercise that helps maximizing that third function of the citta to understand more clearly. 
And this is the stage where we come to a particular type of bhavana called satipatthana, which has um, made its mark in the English world as foundations of mindfulness, which is probably a bad translation. The uh, compound satipatthana can be resolved in two ways. One of sati and upatthana, which could be translated as the application or the establishment of mindfulness, meaning the emphasis on the subjective act rather than uh, when you have satipatthana as satipatthana and foundations of mindfulness, where it feels like this is the objective domain where you actually find the development of sati. Um, the second of the translation has made the race. I don't think this can be reversed, not in my generation, but the first is probably the more correct one. So in many ways, the emphasis should be on the establishing of mindfulness rather than the foundation, the foundational domain of mindfulness. Yeah. So this Satipatthana thing is a, a huge practical preoccupation. It's probably um, the most practical or pragmatic map for which, uh, which the Buddha has given us to... to um, speak in specific terms about how to bring about mind cultivation. This is not just a few uh, scant texts or so. This is a preoccupation that has kept Buddhist traditions for 800 years going. So from the earliest Pali texts onward, you find teachings on Satipatthana. You find them not just in Pali. You find them in the Prajnaparamita texts, uh, the early uh, Prajnaparamita texts uh, have some teachings. You find it in the Abhidharma, you find it in uh, the early Indic traditions, you find it in the Chinese translations of the early Indic traditions. So Buddhists have taken this teaching quite to heart and it has been commented upon, it has been systematized, it has been interpreted right from the word go. So we have a lot of material, much more than the three suttas that are more or less famous in the Pali canon. Uh, two suttas are famous. The third one is slightly forgotten in the Vibhanga uh, of the Abhidharma. But there are many more teachings. We find teachings scattered in the other texts and if we aggregate all this teaching, what becomes clear is that this is a formidable treasure trove of practical tools. And these teachings have come down mostly as um, meditative instruction. And before making use of them as meditative instruction, I would suggest that they are also a map of experience. Um, a map of experience like we have other maps in Buddhist teaching, there are not so many maps of what we call experience. One of them is the five khandhas, the five aspects of experience. One of them is the six sense fields, the ayatanas, which are uh, interesting teachings because if you look at one of the teachings, it says uh, of the five khandhas, four of them are mental and one of them is, uh, is embodied, so to say. One of them is formed yeah, and four others are unformed. Uh, you have one rupa khanda and four arupa khandhas. Uh, if you look at the map of the six sense field, it's the other way around. You have five of these senses are 
uh, embodied and only one is mental. So this is one of my big conundrums. It's one of the questions I would really like to ask the Buddha. You know, <laughs> how do you get these together? You know, one of your maps has seems to be a largely mental kind of map with a little bit of form aspect in it, and the other one seems to be a largely almost materialistic sensory map with a little bit of mind in it. You know. It is my understanding that the Satipatthana not as meditative exercises, but as map of experience, offer some kind of landscape. Now, in that landscape, we have um, these four Satipatthanas can be easily mapped uh, onto all of our experience. Everything we experience has concurrently all four domains of these Satipatthanas. So the distinction we can make is only nominal. That is important to see. So what are these Satipatthanas? The first one speaks of body. Yeah? Kaya, or the, the exercise is Kaya Nupassana, contemplation of body, but the raw material in that contemplation is somatic, is bodily, is physical. Yeah? How we experience body. Not just physically, but somatic. We, we experience body in what we call embodied ways. And this is not just a fancy word, it actually does justice to the fact that the body is both an object of our senses, yeah, we can touch the body, see the body, smell the body. We can, um, I can lick the salty sweat of my skin and I can uh, taste the body, yeah, and I can, um, yeah, I can, I can even hear, you know, I can do something and I can hear my body, yeah. Sometimes we hear our own bodies, we hear other bodies, they can, they can meditators' bodies, they make all kinds of sounds in the morning before breakfast, they make one kind of sounds, and early in the afternoon after the meal they make other kinds of sounds. I've listened to many meditators' bodies' sounds, and some dramatic experiences I will never forget. <laughs> Being late for for my meal as a monk coming into the room where 60 of my fellow monastics were chomping cabbage. <laughs> it's kind of coming into this room of silent human beings, 60 of them all feverishly chomping ill-cooked cabbage. Uh, that You come on a meditation retreat highly sensitized and then you're faced with 60 primates basically <laughs> chomping away at a vegetable. That leaves an indelible mark in you. <laughs> so bodies can be objective to our senses. Yeah. At the same time, body are also the milieu of these very senses. Yeah. So we get the experience of body as a sense object, but we also feel the body not via these uh, uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching uh, senses. We also uh, inhabit the sense, the sensory function. We inhabit the space of the body. This body is also the milieu for these senses. That's what we mean by embodied. We sit in this. Yeah. The guy who coined this term said it very beautifully. He says, you know, we are in this world like the heart is in this organism. Yeah? 
there's a deep truth in this and it's you know in many ways it's so close that we don't quite acknowledge this often that we we are in this world in the same way a heart is in a human organism Now, if we really knew this, we wouldn't behave like we do on this planet, isn't it? If we really truly understood this, we wouldn't behave that way. So, the first of those four Satipatthanas speaks of my somatic, my embodied experience. The second speaks of pleasure and displeasure. It speaks of something we don't have proper terms in English. Uh, we need tricks for this, we need uh, technical language. Um, often the, the term Vedana is translated as feeling, which is uh, misleading at best. Um, it is not feeling in the uh, many common senses of that term. As I'm sure you'll agree with me that the term feeling is a famous semantic contortionist. Um, it can mean so many different things. Yeah. I have a feeling we should go is one type of feeling and she plays um, Paganini's Capriccius without feeling is another kind of feeling or um, the feeling of love is another kind of feeling. These are very, very different uses of the term and uh, using such a term to translate a Buddhist special psychological concept in, invariably conflates the many different English meanings we have with the Buddhist meaning. And then the poor Buddhists get really messed with our own unclarity we have already in our own language. So feeling, um, even if it was useful, is not the term. Vedana is about pleasure and displeasure, about agreeability and disagreeability. Um, there's technically only three in fact, they boil, down, they boil down to two, a pleasant one and an unpleasant one, and the bit in the middle which, um, uh, to which we are basically indifferent. Yeah. If we change our relationship to that indifferent bit, then some of it will become pleasant and some of it will become unpleasant. So, so basically it's uh, what we technically can call hedonic tone. It's the amount of pleasure or displeasure we get out of anything we think, anything we feel, we hear, we taste, we touch. It's something, and believe me, that is deeply, deeply important to us. We hanker for the flavor of Vedana in our lives. Yeah. If you're not sure why you keep doing something you keep doing, uh, look for the Vedana and you will find reasons why you're doing this. It's generally not difficult to feel. Western psychology has tried to conceptualize that. Um, I found it in Kant, where he speaks of affects, which is not what we would use, I think, today. Uh, Wundt, in his theory of affects, has, has uh, pleasure and displeasure play a big role. He has conceptualized that very neatly. And this has gone into modern psychology, um, where you know, the concepts of salience and valence and so are uh, connected with pleasure and displeasure experiences. So Vedana are something that happens any moment of our, with every event in our experience, we have a pleasant or unpleasant dimension. And generally these things matter to us. You know. 
there's a huge connection between pleasure and displeasure and where our attention goes or where it goes away from. Yeah? There's a great, great connection. The third one is a little more complex. Chitta uh, Nupassana, the Chitta here, uh, in a more narrow sense, refers to um, affective, uh, volitional, uh, mood qualities, will qualities, emotion qualities, um, a big area, that's where the much suffering takes place, that's where happiness takes place, that's where purification takes place, that's where stillness takes place. Um, this is a big area in which mindfulness is encouraged to be cultivated and we are always in a mood. You know? We have always an affective disposition. So that leaves us the last one, which is our cognitive dimension, the, the raw material for uh, Dhammanupasana, the contemplation of mind objects, is the discursive, the cognitive, the thinking mind, the mind as mind objects, yeah? thought, image, concept, um, whatever it is that generally we refer to as mind content. So these four, let's call them somatic, hedonic, affective, cognitive, are dimensions of our experience. Before we turn this into a meditation instruction, which it also is, it's useful to identify these four di dimensions in our experience. Knowing what I deal with right now is a discursive phenomena. Knowing what I deal with this discursive phenomena triggers an emotion. Knowing that this emotion is appreciated as pleasant or not appreciated as unpleasant. Knowing that this manifests in my body in such and such a way. These are very, very useful orientation skills. If we want to make use of these Satipatthana teachings, uh, I would recommend you try to identify with this simple map four different dimensions of experience, broadcasting all at the same time. Yeah. You don't have just cognitive experiences with no affective content. You may feel a bit autistic about this, but this is not, you know, you have affective nuances to your cognitive experience. You may feel that they are not very strong, uh, so you may be indifferent towards them. But if you hover, if you refine your attention, you will find some affective coloring taking place. You will notice that th this translates into body, tone, posture, attitude, mimic, gesture. Um, this happens. You know? People who are really good at this, martial artists, uh, investigative uh, intelligence folks, um, sometimes psychologists, they can read very quickly you know, what goes on micromimic uh, expressions. Um, various people have immense skills. If you, if you live a very threatened life, you become really good at figuring out who, who will fight and who will not fight. Or where, if, you, if you're trained to perceive aggression, so you will quickly see this one is li likely to attack, this one is not. Yeah. There's many, many people, generally for reasons 
that are not pleasant, uh, one develops or hones these particular skills. Addicts, for example, become very adept at finding out where they can get stuff or look for their addiction. Or look. So uh, these skills can be honed perceiving embodied expression of what goes on in another person. And uh, meditators obviously are encouraged to do that with themselves, yeah? to become acquainted with the vocabulary of their own bodies, of what goes on. So learning to find the vocabulary of one's sleepiness is a very useful skill to deal with sleepiness, a lot more useful than following thoughts about sleepiness and finding that just by following thoughts about sleepiness one goes to sleep. Yeah. So these four areas recommended as a, ter a terrain of introspective understanding and as the basis for our Satipatthana exercises uh, do spend some time and try to identify whether these make sense to you. What do I recognize as my somatic experience? Do I recognize the pleasure, displeasure dimension in my life? Yeah. What we call a somewhat technically hedonic. Do I understand the difference between an emotion and a thought? Obviously, emotions often bring about thoughts or thoughts bring about emotions. They all can cross-feed each other. But it's good to know with which, on which channel one's attention is. Habitually, attention would be on channel, what I call channel four, on the, the discursive part, because that's where the narrative goes, that's where the story goes, that's where the drama unfolds. Yeah? So if I think about myself, I think about my life, I think about all the things I want and all the things I didn't get, and this is where much of our attention is locked, locked in. And much of meditative attempts, particularly at the beginning of a retreat, will consist of shifting attention from channel four back to channel one, where, say, breathing sensations take place. So learning to do that is a craft, a craft that entails um, less control and more patience and humility, honesty, and the willingness to do something many, many times. Yeah. I hope we have told you that one huge part of meditation practice is that it doesn't work. Okay? <laughs> okay. So much of the feeling of what we do when we meditate is it doesn't work. Yeah. I am not what I think I should be able to do. Yeah. The mind wanders. That's what a healthy mind does. It doesn't make happy. It doesn't make free. In fact, it's documented that it makes unhappy. There's a lot of research. The wandering mind is an unhappy mind. But it's natural that it does that, okay? It's the natural thing to do with the mind, to wander. Attention does wander. That's how we, you know, that's how we, we've been ticking for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But it's not a particularly useful thing. We need to do something specific. And while evolution favors involuntary attention, uh, I think it was Yoko said to, that we basically place that which is interesting into the object rather than recognizing interest as a subjective disposition, 
which makes objects more or less interesting if you turn towards them in that attitude. Um, in the same way, nature seems to favor involuntary attention. In other words, attention is pulled out of us you know, through things that kind of pop up, get our attention. Sudden things, sharp things, promising things, new things, dangerous things, fast things, uh, things that are intense and shrill. So all this gets our involuntary attention. Voluntary attention is a more studious, much more slowly built skill. It's deliberate. It takes training. It doesn't come fast. And meditation belongs to that second dimension. Yeah. Training. And that training means I have to be prepared to go back. I have to be prepared to simply say, ah, oh, this is what you're doing. You've been doing this a hundred thousand times now. Why don't we try something different today? Yeah? Because if it had made me happy, if it had delivered what it pretends to give me, it probably would have given me that. Yeah. Pulling it harder and longer does not make this more likely to happen. So why don't you just go back to the breath and see whether the place from which you experience this world can be changed rather than fixing these little things. Yeah. So um, I would like to encourage you to consider those four channels and you'll hear more of those in the coming days and ponder uh, how you translate these terms into your own experience, which parts of your experience you reckon to be falling in uh, those four channels. And uh, I hope this is helpful to um, allow you to exert greater freedom in the choice where your attention goes, since it is attention and where it goes that makes up our experience. And that ultimately is... Um, capable of rebuilding a citta that is better equipped to deeply understand and thereby find realization of the types of understanding that free the heart. Yeah. That's it for me for tonight. Thank you for your attention. Um, we have some walking till quarter to nine and then a last sitting, yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.